I want to talk to us today about what, what I believe can be one of the most, if not the most, but one of the most dangerous places in your life that you could ever be. When you become complacent, I want to talk to you today about complacency. Because complacency almost feels like it's a good place because not much is going on. You ever had one of those weeks you think, man, I wish it'd just slow down just a little bit? And then you gotta, uh, then you go through this week and it slowed down a little bit and the next week and then you just kind of get used to it and you get complacent. And you're not really wanting to get busy again and you're not really wanting to get engaged again. But complacency is a dangerous, dangerous place for you to be as a Christian. I think it's one of the most dangerous places to be as a Christian. And it's so easy. It is so easy to be, become complacent in the church. And this is why. <clears throat> because we get in the routine of coming, sitting, and leaving. Coming and sitting and leaving. And some we get complacent. Come, we sit, we serve a little bit, and we leave. And we come, we sit, we serve, and we leave. And that's a, referred to as a rut. Never did much like being in a rut. Uh, I used to, when I was younger, I uh, had a motorcycle. Loved my motorcycle. I was a little kid, you know. I'm still little, but I was just younger in age. <clears throat> and so, in case some of y'all was wondering. And uh, I had a little XL75 Honda motorcycle that my dad bought me. And I was probably, I was between 8 and 12, something, something like that. And I remember we lived down this dirt road, and it was uh, what they, we, we called it dirt, they called it gravel, but it was dirt. <clears throat> and there was only a couple of houses on past us, but I had a cousin that lived about a mile and a half on past us. And she was my age, and we would go and play, and so I would go down there on my motorcycle and pick her up. And I remember one time after rain, a few days after, and it had dried up, but they were ruts going down this road where everybody had traveled. And I'm going down through there in my motorcycle, and I'm just doing just fine. Everything's just peachy, you know. And I'm clicking along through here, going to get my, my cousin. We're going to have a great day today. We're going to play. And somehow that rut jumped underneath my tires of my motorcycle. Now, I didn't wreck. I didn't wreck. But, man, was it hard to navigate in a rut. You couldn't get out of it. You, you, you wanted out of it, but you couldn't get out of it. And you were just from side to side until you got that. Until I got that motorcycle slowed down. I thought, man, this is going to be a bad end to me. But I got it stopped. You know what I did? I got out of that rut. And then I started paying attention. Marty, number one, slow down and don't get close to the rut. See, that's what happens when you get complacent. You get in a rut and it's hard to get out of it. So today I want to talk to you about complacency. Complacency, the definition of complacency from Webster's Dictionary simply is this. <clears throat> it is a self-satisfaction, especially, now listen to the definition. You've got to get this. Self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by the unawares of actual dangers or deficiencies. So it's, I'm okay where I'm at, and I'm unaware of any dangers or deficiencies that may hit me. I'm just fine right here. I'm okay right here. 
Anybody ever said, man, I'm okay right here. I'm okay doing this. I'm just fine. Guess what? You're defining somewhat of a complacency in your life. Let me read it again. Self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by the unawares of actual dangers or deficiencies. On May the 31st, 1909, one of the greatest examples of complacency took place on this day. Because on this day, May 31st, 1909, the construction of the Titanic started. It was the greatest ship to ever sail up to that point. It was to be the epitome of all ships. The Titanic was 882 feet and 9 inches long. That's a pretty good distance. It was 90 Two feet and six inches wide. It, it stood 175 feet from water level to the top. It weighed over 46,328 tons. Not pounds, but tons. It had 24 double-ended and five single-ended boilers feeding two reciprocating steam engines on an, with an output of 46,000 horsepower. What do our tugboats today have? 5,000 in 2022. This is 100, over 100 years ago, 46,000 horsepower. It cost some $7.5 million to build in, in, in that time in 1909. It took 26 months to complete. It had the finest, listen to me, I am going to make a point. It had the finest passenger comforts. With the latest technology available, its passengers ranged from immigrants to some of the richest in the world at the time. It was said of this ship, it is the ship that could not be sank. That was what was coined, this ship cannot be sunk. I look at just this little bit I've read you. Looks like a whole lot about like the church. We're all different Backgrounds, all different economic uh, statuses, uh, different intellectual levels. We all comprise and come to the church, and we're here doing one thing, and that's serving the Lord. But in that process, we get complacent, and I want to continue to build on that. There are many things that we can look at or look back on because, you know, there's nothing better than a Monday morning quarterback. You got a problem, guess what? You tell somebody, and here's the first one. Well, you should have done. I would have done. If you'd only done. Well, great. Where were you at last week? There's some things we can look back on and blame the sinking of the Titanic on, and here are some. If they had not hit the iceberg. You ever... Somebody comes to you, you know what, I, I, you know, I cut my finger on a saw. And your response is, instead of being compassionate, you say, we shouldn't put your finger in front of the saw blade. <laughs> Duh. We kind of got that. Better course planning by the captain. Come on. Better shipbuilding regulations. 
better crew training. Less concern about what the Titanic looked like and more concern about its safety. Here's what did not sink the Titanic. A lack of money to build with the best materials. Money was not a problem. $7.5 million in 1909, a lot of money. Money wasn't a problem. Architectural design for safety and passengers was not a problem. That did not sink the Titanic. But there is something that could have saved every life on the Titanic. Did you know that? There was something that could have been put on that the ship was designed to carry but was not in place because of complacency. It won't happen to me. It won't have this ship will not sink. I won't get in that rut. I won't get where I won't truly worship God in spirit and truth. I won't get where I don't serve. I'm going to be plugged in the rest of my life. You think I'm good. And you don't put things in place. We'll come back and talk about these things in a few minutes. Complacency. Complacency with the idea that the Titanic cannot be sunk actually sunk the Titanic. Watch this. If they had to put more lifeboats and better training for the crew members, none of the 2,200, I believe 2,208 people that were on the Titanic would have perished. None of them would have perished. Here's what happened. They had positions and places for the lifeboats on the Titanic. 48 of them would have carried every passenger with some room left over and supplies for them to make it till they got rescued. Let me read something and we'll continue. Here's some of the details about a typical lifeboat that was designed to be on the Titanic. They were called clinker, they were uh, clinker built. There were 14 of them. They were wooden lifeboats measuring 30 feet long by 9 feet 1 inches wide and 4 feet deep. Each had a capacity of 655.2 cubic feet and was designed to carry 65 people. The rudders were made of elm, selected because of its resistance to splitting. And they were uh, 1 and 3 quarters inches thick. <clears throat> The exterior of the boats were fitted with uh, grab lines for people in the water to hold on to. They were fitted with a variety of equipment. Um, you know, I, I forgot my glasses. I'm sorry. So, They were designed with a variety of equipment to aid occupants comprising of 10 oars, a sea anchor, two bailers, a painter, uh, which is effectively a tow rope. Um, <clears throat> 150 feet long, that rope was. Um, Two boat hooks, two 10-gallon uh, imperial gallons tanks of fresh water were on these, which contained biscuits as well. They had food, enough for them, 65, to last for a week or so on water. This is what the, the lifeboat, this wasn't the boat, this is just a lifeboat. Some of you go fishing on your boat, don't take that kind of fresh water and biscuits with you. Now, I'm going to take a biscuit, okay? Don't worry about it. If you go fishing with me, you're going to biscuit. We're going to have biscuits. The, the, this equipment, though, here's where the change was. The boat's not going to sink. 
This is an unsinkable boat. We're so confident that this boat will not sink. Here's what began to happen. This equipment was not kept in the boats for fear of theft, but in locked boxes on the deck. In many cases, the equipment was transferred to the boats when they were launched um, on April the 15th and ended up going down with the ship. Blankets and, spa- and a spare life belt could also be found in the boats. Apparently, unknown to many officers and crew, these boats were reinforced with steel beams in their keels to prevent buckling in the events of needing to be an overloaded. So you could actually put way more than 65 people in this boat and it wouldn't buckle. It would be easy to assume that the reason for the death of 1,503 passengers out of the 2,208 was due to poor planning, but it was not. The main reason for much of this loss on the Titanic was complacency. Remember, complacency is this. It is a self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawares of actual dangers and deficiency. Do you know every time that you get up as a child of God, you, you, you are a danger to Satan? Or you should be. Guess what? When you're a danger to Satan, he's trying to kill you, take you out. His job is to kill, steal, and destroy. John 10, 10. You should know that I'm a danger. When I get up in the morning, the devil ought to be said, oh, God, he woke up. But way too often when we wake up, the devil says, don't worry about it. They're complacent. They're not a bother. They think everything's okay. They think they're doing great. They think they're following God to the fullest, and they're just getting up and going through the motions. They're complacent. The architects were so convinced that the Titanic would not sink or could not sink that they, that they did not follow through with placing enough lifeboats on the ship. There were 48 places, stations, but 16 were put on there. It was designed for this event, if it ever happened, that everybody could be saved, they could be put on the ship. Watch this. The designers were so satisfied that the, that the Titanic could not sink that they became blind to the actual dangers and deficiencies. The reason that they didn't put the other lifeboats on this Titanic was because they said that it wouldn't look right. It's not going to have the appearance that we wanted it to have when we designed it. We know it's necessary. We know that, that, that these lifeboats are uh, regulated and we need to have them. But because of the way it looked, they said, don't put them on there. Man, this could be go a lot of ways right here. So many times we come... we become complacent with God because we think, what are they going to think about us? How's that going to look? How's that going to look? I've been living like a heathen for a long time, saying I'm a Christian. I become complacent, and now I want to change and do right. How's that going to look? Oh, I know I need to. 
I know I need to go to church. I know I need to get in my Bible. I know I need to read and study. I know I need to get involved. But how's it going to look? We become complacent, church. I want to talk to you just for the next few minutes. What in your life have you become complacent with? What is it in your life that you're complacent with? There can be many things. But I want to talk to you about, are you complacent with your spiritual walk with the Lord? We've got some indicators that I want to share. We've got four. I want to share some things with you from the Word of God that may suggest that you are complacent. There was a comedian that coined the phrase several years back. I, uh, I, I forget which one it was. but Oh, thank you, son. Look at there. He knows how I try to do something on the farm, and I have to holler at him or steal his glasses or somebody's glasses. He coined, this comedian coined the phrase, here's your sign. Y'all remember that? Uh, <laughs> Bill Ingvall, Bill Ingvall, my hearing's bad, you know, don't know. Bill Ingvall, he coined the phrase, here's your sign. What, what did that come from? That it was so obvious that you didn't pick up on it, everybody around you could see it, but you were so in whatever it was, complacent, that you needed a sign. So here's your sign this morning. Because it's easy to get there. There's not a person in this room, me at the front of the line, who, haven't, who has not become complacency in your walk with the Lord at some point in your life. Pastor, you're not supposed to be that way. Well, I, I have been. I have been. You know why? Because there's this thing called humanity. I'm not beating you up this morning by any stretch of the imagination. These are probably going to sting a little bit. Because I care about whether your complacency or not about the Lord. I could care less if you're complacent about anything else. That's none of my business. What is my business is your spiritual well-being. And if I don't show you some signs of complacency and what could bring you into complacency, then that's my problem. And I've got to stand account in front of the Lord one day. He said, you know, I gave you a message one day and you didn't preach it because you were afraid of what it might look like. Or what it might sound like. So here we go. Number one. Complacent people play the grace card instead of trying to become an overcomer. Grace is abundant. I am not degrading the amount of grace that we need. So don't take it that way. But when, when it's all about grace, well, let me just, just let me tell you this. So we play a grace card instead of, listen, instead of trying to become an overcomer. If you never pick up your Bible and you never study God's Word and you never get into intimate worship, you're not trying to be an overcomer. The devil will clean your clock. He'll clean your plow every morning you get up. The Bible designed you and I to study God's word so that we can be an overcomer. The Bible says that he that is in me is greater than he that is in the world, but yet we are beat up by the thing in the world. 
Isaiah 14 says this. We're going to look at Satan one day and we're going to say, is, he, is this the one? Is he the one that caused me so much trouble? This? I don't know what the Lord's going to say, but it'll probably be some. yeah, but he didn't have to. You could have overcame. Watch this. Here's some scripture. Ephesians 4, 19. I'll read four or five scriptures. The Bible says this, that they have, now he's talking to the church at Ephesus. He's talking to the church. He's not talking to the heathen. He's not talking to the one that's not proclaiming to be a Christian. He's talking to the church at Ephesus. You must understand when we read things like this, he talks a lot of these, uh, your Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, Thessalonians, those are churches that Paul established and he's going back or sending letters saying, listen to what the Lord has spoke to me about and he's telling the church, do you know that you and I are the church? We always want to take uh, so many applications of God's word and say it applies to the person that's not in church. The problem is that's wrong theology. Paul's writing to the church. And he says, if you're in the church, here's some problems. So watch this. Verse 19, Ephesians 4, 19 says, And they have become callous, they being the church, and have given themselves up to sensuality, to greedy practices of every kind of impurity. That word callous simply means to cease to feel pain or grief. They became complacent. I'm okay where I'm at. I'm just okay. I don't have any pain. The preacher's doing really good. He's not stepping on my toes. I don't have any guilt because everything's good. Let's vote him in for the next term. He says what I like. He never says what I don't like. We're good. Love you. Wrong church. Verse 20. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Now, this is Paul saying to the church. That ain't, let me back up and read 1920 together. They have become callous and given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And he says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, assuming that you went to a Bible-believing pastor preaching a church that preached the Bible and preached the truth, he says, assuming you heard the truth, we've got a problem. Because if you've heard the truth, guess what? You're wrong. You've become complacent. Let's read on. He says, assuming, I'll read verse 21 again, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, verse 22, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Your flesh is corrupt because it's flesh. David and I were talking just a little bit earlier before church that our flesh and God, they're at war to each other. The Bible says that your flesh and your, your, your flesh and your spirit are enmity. They're at enmity with each other. You can't live for the flesh and live for God is what I'm trying to tell you. There's two, there's two principles here. There's this thing going called war. And if you're living for one, you're fighting against the other. If you're living for this, you're fighting against the other. If you're living for the flesh, guess what? You're fighting against God. And if you're living for God, you ought to be fighting against your flesh. I'm telling you, church, I fight against my flesh every day. 
And it still wins sometimes. And I know it's coming. I know my pitfalls. You know your pitfalls more than anybody else. And you still get defeated by them sometimes. Because we choose to follow the impurities, as the word said, of the flesh. Don't ever, y'all are amening me like I'm doing a great job. Watch. Amen. Let me read verse 22 again. And to put off the old self. Who's to put off the old self? You. I'm, you look, the preacher ain't supposed to do it for you. Your wife are, is not supposed to do it. Your husband, you are to put off the old self. What you used to do, look at, let me just, let me, can I get down just old redneck, hillbilly kind of information? If you come give your heart to the Lord, you say you did, you give your heart to the Lord, and you are continuing to do the same things year after year after year after year that you did before you got saved, here's your sign. You didn't get saved. There's going to be, I'm not saying you, you get up from here and you're perfect. I'm not talking about complete sanctification. I'm talking about there's going to be some change. There's going to be some visible changes. You're going to quit doing some stuff and you're going to have to work on others. But along the way, you're going to see some changes. That's called sanctification of this flesh. Amen. It says, uh, and to put off the old self which belongs to the former manner of life. See, you thought I was just making that up. That belongs to the former manner of life, not the new one. Then it says this. And is corrupt through the deceitful desires. That's the old. But you're supposed to be in verse 23. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There should be some change. But complacency says, I've always done that. Been feeling pretty good. Feel pretty good. I don't, you know, nobody really bothers me about too much. Nobody hounds me about coming to church. Nobody hounds me about serving. Well, you ought to serve. That's just a byproduct of getting no Je- coming to Jesus. You ought to want to come and say, what can I do to build the kingdom? Amen. That's something else. Number two. So first we have complacency. Complacent people play the grace card. I'm good. I'm okay. I don't have to do anything. I'm going to make it in. I won't check your sign. Number two. Complacent people are okay doing nothing for the kingdom. In Revelation 13, 15, it says this. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spew you or spit you out of my mouth. Complacent people think somebody else will do it. How many of you work at a place? Maybe you're a, maybe you're a manager. Maybe you're over a department, a supervisor. Maybe you own a company. And... If you do that, you're one of these people. You see something today, and you don't fix it, you don't address it, guess what's going to happen? It's going to be there tomorrow. And you'll come back, and you can leave that uh, trash or paper or, or that machine unfixed and limping along, and until you 
step up and say, as a manager, owner, or whatever, do you say, we've got to fix that. Everybody else just complacent. He's okay with it. I'm okay with it. You're good. I'm good. He's the boss. If he don't care, I don't care. See, that's kind of the way I feel about sometimes when I have to preach hard messages. If he ain't saying nothing, I must be okay. I say things because I love you. I want to see you grow. I, I, we need you to serve in the kingdom of God. God wants you to serve in the kingdom of God. Complacent people think, I'm okay. I've graced the church and God. They didn't sing the song, but they sing the second song I like, so I did worship a little bit there. I'm sorry, let me give you another, here's your sign. If you have that thought process, you're worshiping a song and not God. And nowhere does that say that that's acceptable in the Word of God. Number three, moving right along. I know you're counting them down, checking them off. Complacent people believe they really don't need God. Complacent people believe they really don't need God. I really don't need God. We really don't need those lifeboats on the Titanic. Nothing's really going to happen. You're going to live forever. And when you die, is there really a heaven or hell? You're probably just going to float around with the little fat angels that's got wings on them with little harps. Everything's going to be fine. You're going to be good. There's no life after this. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that I'm a spirit. And my spirit's going to live forever in one of two places. Hell, literally a hell, or heaven. That's, a, that's your two options, by the way. There are no other options. There is no in-between somewhere. You can do good to work your way out. No, you're in hell. You will be there. If you're either in heaven or you're in hell. Period. Complacent people believe that they really don't need God. Revelations 3.17. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched. Pitiable. Poor. Blind and naked. It says, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich with white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent it's so easy in America to say, I don't need God. Howard, I got a good job, good insurance. Things are going well. I've got health. I don't need God for anything. There's a little story in the Bible about a farmer, rich farmer. He had done so well, and farmers need to pay attention. He had done so well, had crops, crops was up good, prices were good. I have done so well, I'm going to have to build bigger grain bins. Put my stuff in. Woo! Look what you have done. 
And the Bible says that the Lord spoke to that man and said, Thou fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. Brings me to a passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 where King Solomon says, It is the vanity of all vanities to think that this is it and you've done something here. This is a 70 or 80 years at best of your life. And then eternity is forever. And to think somehow you have done something without God. is foolish complacency. Do you know that everything you work for can be gone with somebody pulling out in front of you and hitting you head on and killing you instantly? You could, nobody has assured you they'll live tomorrow. You could die of a heart attack right now. You can have well-laid plans next week, and I'm a planner, I'm a preparer. I've got all these plans laid out that I'm going to accomplish if the Lord wills. But if he don't, she does and he does knows what to do. And if they don't, it won't matter. The only thing that's going to matter is do you know Jesus? Your well-laid plans, your hard work here on this earth, and there's nothing wrong with hard. I believe in hard work. I work as hard as anybody. But if you are planning your work here on earth and thinking this is it and not planning for an eternity, and I'm talking about being serious about it, you're in serious trouble. The Bible says you're a fool. I know this is not popular. But God's Word, I read it over and over, and I read that most of the time God's Word was not popular with most. Watch this. Especially with the religious folks, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Do you know that the church folks gave God or Jesus when he was teaching, gave him more flack about what he was teaching than anyone else? It was the church people The religious people, they didn't want to change. They thought, well, you don't know, you can't talk to me that way. You can't tell me that. I'm not telling you, I'm just repeating. Number four, so let's look at these again. Number one, complacent people play the grace card instead of trying to be an overcomer. Number two, complacent people are okay doing nothing for the kingdom. Number three, complacent people believe they really don't need God. And lastly, and number four, Lee, if you complacent people have no problem missing events, not participating, and missing church. These are signs. I've been there. I'm just okay. I'm complacent. Complacency is a stronghold. Do you hear me? Complacency is a stronghold that derives, that that originates from fleshly desires. I want to appease the flesh more than I want to appease God. I want to do for me and my flesh more than I want to do for God. It's all about me and mine, and I don't want to go do this so that someone else might be reached over here so that we can build kingdom. I don't want to do that. That takes up my stuff. That takes up my time. I don't want to get up in the morning and uh, pray and seek the Lord about my day, but you just don't know how busy I am. 
No, I, I really don't. I know you're busy. But you're only busy because you want to be busy. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're only busy because you want to be. No, I have a job. I have this. I understand that. But you can make time if you choose. Whatever I want to do, I'm going to make time for it. There's no more or no less time in the day for you or me. There's 24 hours. 24 hours in a day. Cole, you get no more than me and I get no, no more than you. It's just the same. 24 hours. It's what you do in the 24 hours. It's how you spend it. It's how you prepare. It's how you plan that will keep you out of complacency. If you don't have time, listen to me, and I love you so much because I'm, I'm telling you this. If you're so busy that you can't pray and you can't read your Bible every day, you are too busy, sir or ma'am. You are too busy. You don't have to be that busy. Or should I say, you may not have to be on Facebook or watch television that long. You may not have to sleep 12 hours a day. Get up and, and, and let's get in God's Word. Let's build the kingdom of God. Time is short. He's coming, and I mean He's coming soon. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. It's time, church, that we quit being complacent with the things of God. Putting Him somewhere over here. I'll get to Him if I get to Him, great. But you know, I'm still saved there's way more to just being saved that's, that's, that's what your reward is in the end but what about now what about all the souls that you could help save what about the finances that you have that could pour into a ministry to really expand that ministry sometimes that's all they need is a little more money to expand to reach other people but because you're complacent in what you want to do, and you're hoarding it all up for you. Nothing. Nothing gets done. Complacency. Hebrews 10:25 says this: "Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If ever before in history should we be attending church and serving in ministries, it is now because the day of the Lord is drawing near. It is right now. But yet it seems to we look at this verse and we do just the opposite. We can care less if the church goes on or not. Just as long as it's okay and everything is right and the air is cut on and the worship music is right and the preacher does right and the lights are right when I come. Be right. Get it right when I show up or I'll send you a nasty email. Tell you where to put that email in the trash box. If you want to gain, watch this, if you want to gain influence in this church with me and the deacon board, you participate. Otherwise, you have absolutely zero influence. I love you. That's the way I feel. Get in here and get your feet wet. Get muddy. Get some dirt on your hands. 
And let's build the kingdom. Nothing's ever built just sitting around doing nothing. You can have the greatest laid plans. You can tell me all you want to. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. But until you get up off your blessed assurance and come and put some hand to plow, nothing's going to happen. Reminds me of a story I've told a few times here about a missionary friend of mine or an acquaintance, someone I knew. It really wasn't a friend, just someone I knew. It was in Mexico and there was a flash flood came and water just came gushing down the river. I mean, just... And a little boy fell in. Mom and a, and a, and a couple was by the bank and a little boy fell in. And the missionary dove in the water. Muddy water. And he's searching. And he would come up. Water's about yay deep now. So he's, he's searching. And he's going back under. And every time he would come up, there would be more people on the bank saying, it was over here, over here. And he'd dive in. And he'd done that several times. And every time he would come up, no, it's over here. And no, it's over here. And he finally stood up in the water and said, until you get in the water and help me, shut up. That's harsh. But my God, church people are dying and going to hell in your family and in my family and in this community simply because we stand on the bank and we say, do it over there. Do it over there. Preacher, you need to come talk to my friend, my loved one that's dying, and I don't know if they know Jesus. I do not possess any special powers to get somebody saved. You have the same, if not more, influence over your family member than I do sometimes. What about our kids? What about our grandkids? What about our friends? What about our friends that we do things with, that we spend whole weekends with? Sometimes whole weeks on vacation that are not saved. You know, I got a whole message on that. I could really ruffle your feathers on being unequally yoked. Might preach that next week. Amen. Thank you. The more you miss church, the less you miss church. If you I feel the Holy Ghost because I need the Holy Ghost this will be the hardest statement I made all all day but if you're more passionate with your children hear me out because I love you. I'm not beating you up. I'm here to tell you that you're doing it wrong. But if your children 
can throw a pigskin and know every play in the playbook, throw a baseball and catch a baseball and hit 19 home runs on the weekends, can shoot a bow and arrow and hit a deer at 500 yards. That's, I know that's not possible, but I'm saying. You don't take time to teach them the Word of God. When that's the most important thing, you'll spend hours a week, sometimes a day, doing those things. And your children might know who Moses is in the Bible. They might know the story of Noah. They, they might know the story of Jonah. Church, we are doing it wrong. When that is first priority in your children's life, your grandchildren's life, we are doing it wrong. Let me say, you are doing it wrong. They'll be so old one day they won't be able to bend over and pick up a baseball or a football. They won't be able to do anything but maybe scoot across a, a living room floor if the God tarries. Your children that you're putting so much energy into, so much time. And do you know that But before they're 18, 80% of people decide if they're going to follow the Lord. After that, your chance is greatly reduced. With every three, two to three years, it goes down drastically. And we think that our kids, and look, I, I love ball. I, I was in sports. My kids, was, I love sports. But you can ask either one of my kids. It didn't come before God. Because you'll be so old one day, you won't be able to squint and see through a scope to hit anything. But I don't even happen to open my eyes to feel and sense the presence of the Lord when I may be laying on a sickbed or deathbed. That's what we got to give our kids. That's what we got to give our grandkids. That's what we got to give the kids in this community. I know this is tough. I'm not beating you up. But here's your sign. I'm going to close. I said in the beginning of this message that there's many things that we can look back on and blame the sinking of the Titanic on. And here are some. I said to you that better course planning by the captain, better course planning. He knew the icebergs were, icebergs were there. He knew there was danger. And his command, if you read, uh, go back and read on the Titanic, was full steam ahead. So the captain, the one who could have changed the course of history for 2,208 people said, full steam ahead. May I present to you, moms and dads, let me back up. I said it that way intentionally. I planned that out to say moms and dads. Dads and moms, you are the captain of your house. The Bible says, dads, that you are the priest of your home. And if you're the captain and you say, kids, full steam ahead, that's where they're going. 
Moms, if you say, guess what? If you agree with dad on, on doing all of those things that are against God, guess what? They're going, they're going with dad. They're going with mom. You're the captain of your house. You're the captain of your soul. It is time that we say, I am a captain. I have earned the right in the Lord Jesus Christ to be the captain of my house. And in my house, we'll serve the Lord. And in my house, everything will be second to the Lord. You're the captain. Better planning could have kept the Titanic, the Titanic from sinking. Number two. Better shipbuilding regulations. They could have made it even stronger than it was. Here's the problem. They didn't follow the regulations. Priest of your home, dads and moms, we need to be accountable. We need to be accountable to what God's word says that we're supposed to be for our kids and our families. All I got to do is get the dads to act right in the church and start coming to church and everybody else will follow. You know, that's a statistic that's proven year after year. If the dads will get right with God and serve God and get on fire for God and tell our kids we're going to church, guess what? The family will follow. Maybe we need better regulations for our dads to get in God's word, follow God's word, not deviate from God's word, not add to God's word, and not take away from God's word, and not mess up what God's word says, and not put an opinion on God's word, but follow God's word. Just maybe we can save our kids. Thirdly, Better crew training. Better crew training would have helped with the Titanic. Well, maybe, just maybe, we need training from God's Word and less training from the world. Hear me out. Your kids, when they sit down and watch television, and look, I'm all about television. I got a couple in my house and I watch them. I'm not talking about that. But when you sit down in front of a television, do you understand that the world is teaching your kids? They're teaching your kids that LGBTQ2LMNOPQ, all those other words and letters, that are okay. Every commercial that comes on television has something to do with a rainbow or you're weird because you don't accept it. It's okay to have kids out of this wedlock and out of this. It's okay. It's not okay. It's okay for you to shack up over here and live with somebody that ain't your husband and wife. No, it's not. The Bible says it's fornication. The Bible says we ought to abstain from that. But yet it's socially accepted. Do what you want. Live like you want. And if the church says anything, then they must be a bigot and they're not a love and they're judging you. That simple phrase of being judged, you being judged, I'm telling you, it's going to send a many a church and their pastor straight into the pits of hell, I believe. Don't judge them. Love them in, love them, and, and they can stay the way they are for until they die. I like that. 
It's a wide gate. That leads to destruction. And a narrow gate. That leads to life. One writer says. The size of the roads. Gives you an indication of how much traffic is going to be on each one. Let me finish. If the designers would have been less concerned about what the Titanic looked like and more concerned about safety, everyone would have been saved. We need to be more concerned with what God's Word says than what the world thinks about us. They already think you're weird if you just say you're a Christian and you're double weird if you go to a Pentecostal church. It's okay to go to some kind of because they're just passive. And, okay, nothing wrong with that. I got great friends in all of those. I'm not beating those up. I'm just saying you're double weird if you come to Pentecostal church. Because we're so concerned about how we look. How we present ourselves. Reminds me of another story in the Bible. Some of you need to get a hold of and read it. King David went to bring back the Ark of the Covenant. After he had left it for three months at Obed Edom's house. He figured out how to do it right. First time he didn't do it right and killed some folks. Second time he read up on how to, hold, how to carry it and put some staffs to it, put it on the shoulders of Levites and started bringing it back to the city of David. And he would give sacrifices every six paces. And so there was thousands of sacrifices. He, he learned how to do it right. But when he come into the gates of the city of Jerusalem, his wife Micah was standing in her bedroom in the king's palace overlooking the, the, the parade coming in with the Ark of the Covenant. And David danced like a fool. Said he danced and he danced and he danced plumb out of his cloak, out of his kingly robe. He sent the people home, went home expecting man a great hoorah. And his wife said, oh, you king. How dignified have you been today in front of all of your people? You were something to see out there. You look like a fool. I love David's response. David responded, woman, if you think yesterday or today was something, wait till tomorrow because tomorrow I'll dance even more for the Lord. I'll be even more foolish for the Lord. And because, listen to this, you go read it. And because she mocked David for worshiping the Lord, do you know that she never had a child? And to not have a child as a woman in the Bible was a disgrace. You were looked down upon. Don't tell me God's not interested in him being first in your life and you putting other stuff in front of it. I don't believe that for a minute. God's the same yesterday and today and forever. Guess what? The only thing changes about that, that's Old Testament. You got an immediate penalty. Now you're under New Testament. Oh, there's the penalty. It just comes a little bit later. 
problem is we're so complacent we don't even see it and we end up there and we never had a chance to change. We never had a chance to repent of it. Church, it's time. It is time. We quit playing church saying we're a Christian and not doing one thing about it. Stand up with me all across this building if you will.